you know, only humans are conscious, but yeah. then they are very eager to leap into the no free will, no consciousness is a causal, you know, like, this is somewhat, uh, you know, uh, contradictory. Yeah. Like, we want to be unique, but then we say, hey, you know, that actually doesn't matter at all. And yeah. what somewhat, um, you know, frightens me is that the eagerness to reach uh, people, especially, you know, scientists, yeah. uh, or people who work in science, yeah. jump uh, to the defense of there is no free will, sure. and, you know, consciousness is a causal. Like, for some, for some reason, this yeah. is so appealing to people, and I don't get why. I don't understand why at all. Well, I, I, I think it's because of, I think it's the evolutionary history of those particular um, packages of, con of concepts or, or, you know, meme, meme plexes or, or whatever you want to call them. You know, I think that... Meme, meme, meme plexes are good. Meme I, 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 think, like I think that a lot of these people want to avoid being associated with certain meme plexes that they think are religious and specifically Christian in origin. And... They, the idea of, uh, they, they, I think they have a very confused notion of uh, what, it, what it would mean for consciousness to be causal. And I think that they are still very influenced by a dualistic, they, they, the only way they think it can work is through some kind of weird dualism, because they think that consciousness is fundamentally, uh, or the idea that there's something different from the brain. Um, I, so I think they're very confused ah, so in this so, way. So you're basically saying that they it ties together with them saying, "Hey, we're unique. We have this unique feature." Yes. But then, because but, they but can't, not like they already think this is unique, that means that this is different to nature. And then for it to be, you know, uh, to be act like whatever active, they it has to exist in a different plane. And so they say, hey, that doesn't exist on different planes, yeah. therefore it's not active. Yes, it, well, sort of, yeah. So I think that essentially because human exceptionalism, and again, I've just been arguing for it for quite a while, because the, the fact, and I'm going to say that, that humans are exceptional, uh, are very different from other organisms, is pretty inescapable no matter how you look at it. Um, so scientists still, a lot of scientists anyway, still want to be able to say that, that humans are exceptional. And of course, they still have the, the hubris that comes with being a human and you know all the things that you've been pointing out. They want to say their own species is exceptional too, but it is. Anyway, whatever. But they believe that um, the religious model and particularly the, the Christian model is that humans are exceptional because we have a, a soul kind of thing, right? So they, they're a bit nervous about their human exceptionalism and they want to make sure that it's very different from the kind of human except, you know, <laughs> I keep saying that phrase now, but very different from that which uh, exists within a Christian framework. And to them, the, the precise culprit of that is the idea that, that consciousness is somehow different and, and, and they don't believe... <laughs> And causal, you know, is some. The thing is, they retreat, as I've said many times, they retreat into a kind of weird dualism because the idea that consciousness is not causal, because they're not, you know, saying that there's no such thing as consciousness. None, none of them are denying yeah. that they have an experience, but then they're saying it's not 
causal and they don't see how that is a kind of weird twist on dualism. It's like they were really... Yeah, no, that's, 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 that it is essentially dualism. Yeah. Like, it's not but if you say that it's a-causal, it's by default dualism. Yeah, I, I just find it... It's like that they re they're really afraid of dualism, but they're so afraid of that concept area that they're not willing to look closely enough at it to see how embedded it is in their, you know, structure of the world and in their model. So, mm -hmm. so that's why I call it vesti mm -hmm. vestigial dualism, because it's still in there. They've still got all this remnant dualism in their minds that is influencing the way they think about everything. Um, and they're not willing to look closely enough at the concept of, of, of dualism because they're afraid they'll be tarnished with it somehow. And I, and I really think that this whole this is so tied up with the whole free will thing as well, because... It's, it's almost, a, they have that argument always that it's so obvious that consciousness is not causal. Look at this empirical data and, oh, it's such a silly idea. And, and they, they fob the whole idea off because to them it is like a tarnished and dirty meme because for them it's so inextricably bound up with religion. So they're not willing to look really, really closely at that. They want to jump over all that thorny philosophical ground in case it somehow tarnishes them and they get sucked into it and then they start to f believe in dualism or something. <laughs> but because they're just leaping over it, they end up believing in dualism, but a weird, <laughs> a-causal dualism. Like, they get nothing of what they want. They want to kill dualism and preserve human exceptionalism. And they end up, you know, reinforcing dualism. Uh, and and risking the charge that humans are automata, which is obviously closer to you know older ideas of, of other animals. So they, I think they're very confused in 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 the way different concepts are influencing their <laughs> you know yeah. their models. Yeah, I just always it's really, really funny and interesting, yeah. and it's like you know the amount of time humans spend on the you know things like you know mining things and discussing things i mean we're doing it now but like the dis discussing you know uh things that aren't real you know <laughs> like the amount of papers they are on the fact that uh, not the fact but the amount of papers that are on the idea that you that consciousness is a, a causal or there is no free will is astonishing sure. the amount of debate there yeah. is like do we have free will don't we have free will yeah. like Come on, you know, it's just not only it's a waste of time. I mean, we do waste time in many different ways. Yeah. I mean, now you have PlayStation, you know, right? Yeah. But it's but I don't uh, see it like, waste time, but yeah. <laughs> it's still like it's not getting us anywhere in a way, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. because we, we well, humans have hmm. the same, you know, debates since, you know, ancient Greeks or maybe, yeah, maybe even before. You know, they had essentially the same debate. Do we have free will or don't we have free well, will? We have, and the arguments yeah. are the same. Yeah, well, we're debating the history of the debate. I mean, it's it's a it's a classic, you know, <laughs> or, or robberous, it's a classic feedback cycle because what people are trying to do, no matter which side they're coming at it from, is they're trying to, um, you know, dig their way out of all of this confused thinking on the subject from the past. I mean, to some extent, that's what philosophy is. And of course, you know, I don't think it's a waste of time, but, you know, we could talk about why it isn't. But um, it, it is some... Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that, you know, computer gaming no, is necessarily a waste of time. I don't think it is But either. it is a waste of time in a way that we're not progressing, you know? Debate on the free will isn't progressing anywhere. But, yeah. For the last mm. 2,000 years, Yes, but 
that that might be true but of course one might feel that if one doesn't weigh in with one's own particular take on the arguments that the the debate will continue uh, without your contribution and it might go in a way that that is quite potent causally so we do have this belief you know philosophical people philosophers thinkers have this belief which is <laughs> this is just so like sorry i'll interrupt you here yeah, again, yeah, no, but this fine. is so funny i find yeah. it so hilarious that people who say there is no free will yeah, yeah, yeah. they want to keep that argument <laughs> yeah. out because otherwise yeah. they think that you know Human, otherwise yeah. the society will think that there is free will so yeah, they yeah. want to make something happen yeah. to change something through yeah. the execution of their free will yeah. but they are arguing that Absolutely. there is no free will so, <laughs> yeah so they want a, a, a concept so funny. Yeah. i know it's classic isn't it i mean yeah there are there are all those classic formulations of the argument which are basically along the lines and i mean they are there is wisdom in them obviously but it's basically like give up your illusion of freedom in order to to become truly free and of course that that's that's a you know it's a beautiful thought and it's in quite a few uh you know sort of religious traditions or traditions that evolved into religions like buddhism uh you know it's a foundational idea in buddhism isn't it but and it, and it works too because it, because it's about it's about letting go of all this tension and, and you know it, it's it's a fantastic notion it's it's also a paradox and if you don't notice that it's a paradox well maybe you're just a pragmatist you know maybe all these people are just really pragmatic because they they're trying to convince themselves that they don't have free will because it's so much easier of course that would be sartre's concept of bad faith as well is the idea that actually people are afraid of their free will so it's not the people who want to preserve the notion of free will who are really the romantics or who are afraid that they are just automata uh it's actually the opposite it's the people who want to say that we don't have free will who are committing bad faith because they're refusing to take responsibility you know it's the ultimate conspiracy theory uh <laughs> the idea that forces beyond ourselves are controlling us and they're the real reasons why we either aren't succeeding or why we were an asshole the other night or whatever it might be and as usual there's a lot of of truth and useful information in the arguments of the let's call them free will minimizers you know and and we can include you know incredibly wise people like buddha amongst that crowd in 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 some sense you know because of this idea surrender your illusion of freedom uh in order to become truly free because that ties in with that idea of you know happiness is wanting what you have not getting what you want and those are profound and really valuable yeah, ideas no, I mean, to they're, understand they're really helpful like as ideas go yeah. but you know it's the uh, like we as humans we always want to have it black and white i mean yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. it's come it is coming from me so i know this is kind <laughs> Mr. of Mr. black weird, and white but, yeah i mean it's in here it's it's yeah. somewhat funny right yeah. because it's like we don't have free will or we have free will like can it be somewhere yeah, in between maybe course. you know like yeah. i mean in the beginning you know like if we call buddha the beginning it kind of makes sense because you <laughs> yeah. know in there maybe people thought i mean actually that's not the case because you know buddha was there or karma was buddha, like i mean when buddha was already they would we already had karma right yeah because i have like some misunderstanding of when we have uh when the hinduism changed as you know a reaction on buddhism or sure. you know what style what like what state existed before buddhism yeah. because it does do think that at that point they already you know had a good understanding of 
you know, cause and effect that yeah. you do good stuff, sure. you will get born as the, you know, the yeah, good yeah. guy, as the, you know, yeah. you will get born as whatever, Brahma. So the fact that you are, you are here is obviously an effect of your yeah, uh, previous deeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you are in control, but Buddhism, that's yeah. still, that's not you in a control, right? So you are a, uh, like, outcome of the previous stuff. So yeah. you are not altogether free. Sure, absolutely. So, but still, you know, like, there's his, a bit of, his argument yeah. still makes sense in a way that, yeah, hey, absolutely. you know, I'm not entirely in control. You know, a lot of things yeah. affect my, yeah. uh, the way I act. And it's not necessarily me thinking mm. uh, that I act on my free will. It's just, and yeah. So, like, a lot of things, they affect uh, me. And then I think that this is me acting while this is just, you know, forces acting through me. Like, absolutely, it's yeah. good in that sense. Yeah. But, but they preserve it. You know, they preserve it still a bit has of freedom to have the there, middle ground. It's yeah. still to be like you know, yeah. And within all of that, I still decide whether I act yeah. or I don't act. Absolutely. On and I think that, you know what you're implying. I think that that very much exists within within Buddhism because there is the idea that you can end this cycle and you can end it really rapidly if you just understand these particular tenets. Um, so, I mean, it is literally surrender a certain illusion of control in order to take real control or to take you know well, yeah. to take more control and that that is a very beautiful idea and it is it is very perverted it's a beautiful and pragmatic idea and it is perverted and it's it, it's basically um you know it's a reductio it makes it makes it an absurd argument when people then go on and say and that's why we don't have free will they, they're like there, there's the unconscious, therefore we don't have free will. There's genetics, therefore we don't have free will. There's yeah. your, your upbringing, therefore we don't have free will. And they, they correctly identify all of these very, very potent uh, influences on our behavior. But then they say, oh, and all the rest is nothing. You know? and, and they just, again, it's like they are leaping over that distasteful area where things become really you know, philosophically thorny. Uh, and only, and again, in a self-perpetuating manner, because it's not—it's really not that complicated. I mean, Kant, uh, you know, proactively refuted any argument that came after him, even though, you know, he may well not have believed in free will himself. He, you know, he said it's impossible to act except under the idea of freedom, which means that you know it doesn't matter whether you believe in free will or not, you're going to be making decisions. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. it is a really funny. It is a really funny thing, and of course, you know, he was trying to escape. He was already trying to escape from some kind of, uh, you know, superficial Christian idea, um, you know, set of ideas. He was trying to disentangle those and 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 get away from them, and that's why he was uncomfortable with. Well, that is one of the reasons why he was uncomfortable with with free will, because. I suppose we have to remember that there's always been this really reactionary element in science from the beginning that, you know, the Enlightenment is, is partly about a certain kind of aggressive breaking away from from the, you know, uh, religious dogma and all that kind of stuff and the Royal Society with their nullius ad verba, take no, you know, no authorities kind of idea. Um, and so people are trying... Yeah. So that, that idea that we have to escape that, that baggage that comes to us from the religi religious framework 
you know, goes back right to the beginnings of, of modern science. And people like Kant were, were, I guess, grappling with that kind of thing. And he was trying to find a philosophical way out to say, well, science basically shows us that, you know, it's probably a deterministic, uh, you know, determinism is probably real. But that doesn't matter because we have to act under the idea of freedom. But the reason science appears to be showing that kind of stuff with its, you know, uh, Laplace's demons and all these very simple models of um, of causation is not only because of the, you know, the billiard board, billiard balls physics of, you know, the Newton uh, Newton's mechanics. It's also because people who were part of modern science were philosophically prone to try again and escape from baggage that they saw as coming from religion. That that is part of the foundational values of science. So. I think this this battle, which obviously goes back, I mean, this philosophical battle about free will, which obviously goes back yeah. thousands of years, also has this weird twist and intensification with the Enlightenment and then obviously the the relatively, uh, you know, early modern physics and Newtonian physics, and then it's it's changed yeah, in a number yeah. of ways. I think, you know, the... Uh... Yeah, like the idea that you know, world isn't the way you think it is. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. the idea that you thought you know world, <laughs> yeah. you know, you thought you know those guys are right, but they're yeah, yeah, fact yeah. wrong. Sure. Like this is a very you know strong notion in science, and this is actually yeah. a very strong notion in science communication. Absolutely. You thought you know where your nightmares come from, but yeah. scientists show you know <laughs> like all this crap. Yeah. And it's exactly. it's a very you know potent thing. It's like you thought you know, but in fact you're wrong. And this is, you know, why, like, I mean, this is why we actually have the idea of modern science, yeah, you know? absolutely. Because, yeah. in my opinion, we can't really clear-cut, you know, the science that starts with the Enlightenment sure. era, sure. that it's somewhat, you know, like, completely different to the science before, because it's, it's it rests on the foundation of the alchemists, it rests on yeah, the foundation of, of ancient yeah, Greece, yeah. you know? Of course. Without them, we don't have it. It's a continuation of the same thing. Of course, Right. Yeah. So like you know, I guess we guess we discussed you know some yeah. days ago that you know Dalton's um, uh, revel not revelations but Dalton Dalton's work on atoms yeah. is the completely in vain of the tradition of alchemy. Yeah. It's not that some but sometime you know suddenly in the beginning of the nineteenth century you know we have a new chemistry. No, it's just like we continue the same shit. We just you know uh, change the paradigm. You know previously the paradigm was one that you can you know. You know, perfect the nature. Now we decided to get rid of that and just, you know, get the uh, materialistic approach to everything. But we still have the same, you know, we don't dis discredit the experience. So mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, it's the continuation of scientific experience that goes back to freaking Democritus, right? Yeah, yeah of course. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so, but then we have that notion in science, especially, that we have this modern science yeah, yeah. that starts with enlightenment. And then we have the, you know, whatever, new modern science that starts in the 20th century, and that's the true science. And this is because, you know, of the, I think, exactly of the notion that we thought we know, yeah. but in fact we didn't know sure. how we It's reactionary. That. Yeah, it is a reactionary <laughs> idea, for sure. Uh, and I wonder how, and, you know, I'm, I'm prone to, to looking at the work of, of specific philosophers and, and wondering how influential it's been but again if you look at uh, if you look at Descartes and his form of skepticism like there was a growing distrust in the senses as well and I think that that reaches a fever pitch with with Cartesian skepticism and 
you know, his ultimate derivation of the argument, you know, I think, therefore I am. And, and essentially, there's nothing else I can be certain of other than the fact that I think, because everything that comes to me via my senses could be... Uh, could be wrong and of course he ultimately you know he believes in god and takes a bunch of other stuff that he he says he can take for granted as well but that kind of distrust of the senses and you find it in other philosophers from from you know that period and early enlightenment and stuff science is partly a reaction to that as well isn't it i mean it's the same idea it's that your human experience is very far away from the actual world. There's always this idea that this is the actual world. And it's a very um, Democritian idea in some sense. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, it, is, it is exactly. It's like Democritus was saying that, you know, that, you know, every, everything that we see are the properties of, uh, you know, atoms, but we don't see or perceive all yeah. the properties. Like, we can't, can't possibly perceive all, like, reality in its entirety. Well, the only so, thing that is real, you know, it's atoms in the void. It's that vision that re yeah. what's really real, the true true, what's actually actual, is just atoms in the void. And the rest is just this illusory experience that you're having. And yeah, that idea... Yeah, but, but Democritus wasn't right, you know. Democritus came to his conclusion through philosophy. <laughs> if you wanted real experiments, therefore he was wrong. And only the experimental science is right. Well, thanks to a conspiracy by, by Plato... We, we don't know most of what Democritus knew. Maybe he knew it all. You know, maybe his later works were all, you know, quantum mechanics and stuff. But, um, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. But I, in this vein, I don't, quite like, I don't quite understand then why we discredit alchemists. Because alchemists yeah. were experimental. They were freaking doing experiments yeah. all the time. That's, that's all what they were doing, you know, until Rosenkreuzers. So until, you know, alchemy became, you know, philosophical in yeah. one branch at least. But it was entirely experimental. Yes, but why they we were... don't say, hey, you know, alchemists, by the way, are also were, you know, the foundation of science. No, it's like nineteenth century. Okay, well, well, here's an idea as to why. Uh, perhaps it's because, and you know, my knowledge of, of alchemy is is far lesser than yours. So correct me if I'm wrong. But alchemists were, in some sense, even at that time, working. They were. A lot of them were, were religious, let's say, maybe some sort of Christian or Gnostic or whatever, but they were yeah. they were trying to they didn't see their brand of experimentation as a break from the church. They saw it as a synthesis of, you know, religion and empirical investigation and that kind of stuff, right? And magic and all this kind of stuff. Like they had a fundamentally more uh you could say metaphorical or mythological. Um, I'm waiting for you to jump in and say this is not right, but they had a, a, a view that certainly was open to to, to magic and and souls and and spirits and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Whether whether they were complete, yeah. but hang on, the, the modern science was specifically a reaction against a lot of that kind of stuff. So maybe it's basically you can imagine it as as, as factions of of, of um, proto scientists and some of them are 
you know, very accepting of or encompassing of or interested in a certain brand of, of mythological thinking, and others think that that is that everything about religion and all that is 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 bad, and that's that's the past, and we need to get away from that. This very reactionary branch, and in the meme war, the reactionary branch won basically, you know, and so alchemy was firmly was thoroughly discredited as part of a meme war. But they, you know, agents of the the uh, you know more, the reactionary branch in this model agents specifically tarred and feathered alchemy specifically um you know made it discredited it basically so think of it yeah that no, fair enough but then but then why newton newton was really into ether and newton was yeah, really into couldn't, alchemy you couldn't why, deny, why newton is good why you know yeah because you couldn't deny the thing is if if, if other alchemists had made discoveries and and uh, you know anything like as potent as Newton's, or that were as a, as apparently potent. Yeah, but you have you have Paracelsus. You know you yeah. can like I mean again we discussed it in text messages, but yeah. uh, Paracelsus essentially discovered neutrons, sure. right? So you know in a way like if yeah. you uh, map his metaphors onto our understanding of physics now, yeah. he's essentially saying that you know Democritus's atoms are yeah. composed on the, the three elements. You know, the flammable uh, sulfur, the immovable and, uh, like, completely impeccable uh, salt, and the mercury that you can't possibly catch, and it's in principle, you know, undeterminable, and this is, like, moving so fast that you cannot even, like, think about it. Yeah, but at that and point, like, it, that was not... This a... is the model of atom, essentially, but we're like, yeah. no, this is not important. Yeah, but think about, the, think about the difference in... The, it, it's not necessarily about the fact content as such, but think about the difference between the work of Newton and the work of, of Paracelsus here. Newton's work is immediately predictive, it's immediately applicable, it's immediately sort of industrializable, you know, it has all of these immediate um, impacts in the world, it's demonstrably true. You know, you can use his, um, his calculus and predict things that are going to happen it's it's a predictive science you know it, it's exactly the the ideal of that whole modern scientific thing whereas you know paracelsus maybe ha has a very profound uh description of something in the world but at some level he's unable to demonstrate it perhaps you know and and he's still indulging in too much it's too much metaphorical thinking it's too much like philosophy yeah. it's like a philosopher uh, yeah, I, think, I, think, I think metaphorical yeah. thinking is what actually yeah, yeah. i think this is yeah. you're right here yeah. i think the problem of alchemists is that they you know they kind of you know esoteric branch of philosophy in terms yeah. of the, the way they write yeah. and in terms of the way they think yeah. so for you know for your exactly. you know enlightenment era scientists like yeah. you read those guys and it's just like bah this it's is fairy tales science, you, know? you know yeah, they exactly. talk about red lions and the virgins and everything yeah and you're like i don't have time for this crap yeah. you know i don't have time totally. for this code i don't guy like whatever to hell with them basically yeah and and although newton was clearly into all of that kind of stuff he also yeah. you know he derived a language calculus uh, you know, along with Leibniz, um, and that was immediately usable once you know other people had learnt it. And it's again, it's predictive capacity. It's cut and dry. You know, I mean, it's 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 ironic and interesting, of course, that it turned out to be you know an approximation and you know kind of in some sense, some people would argue falsified by by Einstein's relativity. But of course, it still absolutely works. Um, 
so it's just a different order of thing. Like you do, even if Newton had only had embedded his calculus in, you know, fully illuminated manuscripts that were full of, um, you know, alchemical metaphors, people could have ignored all of that and kind of gone straight to the data, so to speak, uh, and 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 extract yeah. extracted that, <laughs> and it would have been it would have been potent. It's like it's like it is exactly this divide between quote-unquote philosophy and quote-unquote science, like in the restricted sense that most people use those terms. Because, it, you know, take, mm -hmm. take, take a, a, a very, um, uh, you know, a great philosopher of mine like Daniel Dennett, who's come up with a lot of ideas that have actually gone on to, to influence cognitive science and, and, and different things. You know, he's had a big impact. But for the most part, although he has taken part in, in, in some science as well, for the most part, he's a, a philosopher. And even though he doesn't talk in, in metaphors and things like that, he's, he's not exactly you know, an alchemist. Um, he tries to be very clear, but he discusses concepts that are well ahead of the, of the traditionally empirical curve. You know, it's things that he's discovered through introspection and through thinking really deeply about, you know, uh, the readings that he's had and the theories, you know, it's, it's, you know what I'm saying, it's, it's philosophy. Yeah. And there are many neuroscientists who are not interested in, in the work of, of Daniel Dennett and even someone like, you know, Francis Crick, who got into neuroscience late in life and, and was, you know, really into consciousness and was working with Christoph Koch and really wanted to solve the riddle of consciousness and things like that. When people talk to him about Dennett, particularly, I think, you know, very much later on um, to, in the last few years of, of Crick's working life and perhaps his life, uh, he would say, you know, Daniel Dennett is not going to be correct. He will not be shown to be correct because he's not talking about neurons. I mean, that's almost a, a verbatim quote of Francis Crick. You know, don't talk to me about Daniel Dennett. He's not correct because he's not talking about neurons. Uh, he could, yeah, no, that, I, like I see, I see that. You yeah. know, this is essentially like Democritus was wrong because he didn't do an experimental science, and therefore yeah. his atoms are not actually atoms. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, your atoms aren't atoms either. I think, either. you know, science, science, I don't think science will ever change me, you know, of that, because science is, uh, like, it's a very interesting, you know, branch of human activity, because mm. it, you know, um, like, uh, it uh, rewards a certain kind of thinking, and within certain kind of thinking, you know, it has certain kind of, you know, drawbacks, yeah. like, it rewards you being curious. It, it rewards, you know, search for novelty. Therefore, it rewards discrediting everything that's past because you search yeah. for what's noble. You search for what we don't know. Yeah. Therefore, your, you know, initial idea would be everything that you knew before is incorrect, yeah. right? And that's, you know, like why we have all of the discussed previously. True, and true. Uh, like the same, you know, thing that, you know, everything that we discuss within the continue continuity of our explanation is valid. Yeah. Everything outside of continuity of our explanation is invalid by default. Yeah. Therefore, if somebody says something right, but he, he is outside of the continuity of our explanation, he is wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's the same phenomenon where the most superficial parts of any given philosophy and empirical science being a, a particular philosophy in this case, the most superficial parts of that, uh, the parts that are what it looks like from a distance, but are not what it is if you actually engage with it really close up and 
Um, and yeah, these most superficial ideas are the ones that go to fixation in populations most easily and end up therefore having the most causal impact because they're very easy for people to grasp and people think they've grasped the whole of the idea, um, which they clearly haven't. Uh, but really all they've got is this, is this superficial idea and that often tends towards, or it does seem to, an idea that helps them to justify their image of themselves as superior to other people or more ethical or whatever it might be. So it's often used in a reactionary way. And science is, as we've just discussed, in some sense, inherently reactionary. Um, and another interesting thing would be to discuss would be, you know, the sort of post-World War II um, scientific writers versus postmodernism phenomenon. Um, and again, postmodernism is another one of, you know, suites of ideas of which the most superficial have become the most causally potent and are, you know, really dangerous. Um, so there are lots of bad ideas to have come out of that. But there was this battle, uh, you know, scientific writers in the 70s, 60s and 70s and things were, re and, pro and later, and actually it's still very much going on today. And people like, um, you know, my dear friend, <laughs> Richard Dawkins, are um, amongst pe people, <laughs> people who um, were forged in the crucible of that era when, you know, there was a battle against postmodernism. And for them, that's also very much tied up with the, the battle against religion. And they often liken postmodernism to fundamental uh, uh, religiosity and, and all this kind of stuff. So you get very superficial ideas, uh, versions of very complex suites of ideas. Like that, you know, science is full of, you know, absolutely fantastic ideas. Um, but these superficial versions, or they're versions in a vacuum because people don't connect them to wherever they came from or to the other ideas that are required to, to under, you know, properly understand the core ideas and all that kind of stuff. And these superficial versions of ideas are the ones that end up doing battle a lot of the time. And then people have to wait, people with more complex appreciations or understandings have to kind of wade into that battle and try to pull apart the mess that's been, you know, spun, the web that's been spun by <laughs> the, the people who were just reacting to each other in the first place. Um, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting phenomenon. I think that there's a lot of that now in the kind of culture wars that we see now um, and all the things that we, we've talked about before. And uh, it's interesting that a lot of the people who have been infected, um, you know, in the diagnosis of someone like Jordan Peterson and many others with toxic means from postmodernism, a lot of them also have certain toxic memes from science as well. Uh, so a lot of them might be very anti-religion, for example. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like people have taken the most superficial ideas from a bunch of different philosophies, which on the face of it, you know, if you went deeper into those philosophies, you'd find a lot of deep tensions and, and, and schisms and, you know, tricky philosophical uh terrain to navigate if you wanted to bring the two larger uh, suites of ideas into some kind of harmony with each other 
people have just taken the most superficial ideas out of out of all these different frameworks and 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 created their own kind of meta framework and of course you would accuse me i mean you frequently accuse me of doing this as well with my concept of, of coherence so you know maybe that's just what what people do and particularly in the kind of information environment that we live in now where everybody's exposed to a little bit of everything um this, yeah. this is gonna happen. yeah i think you know humans humans are essentially non-scientific in a way like humans essentially yeah. want to have you know wise people you know and not even like wise but in a way that you know prophets people want prophets and people like to listen to prophets sure. and then prophets came you know come and they say hey you know the world is made of atoms yeah. or the world is uh you know uh, we don't have free will and then people is like they don't you know need an explanation further than the, the prophet's certainty yeah. so prophet would say mm. you know the god told me told me so and if this is the current you know uh, justification people are like sure. yeah okay that's fine and yeah. they don't need to hear god actually saying that they believe sure. the prophet yeah. And then, you know, the prophet comes and says, hey, you know, science told me that. Yeah. And it's essentially is not at all different from the God told me so <laughs> as far as the average human is concerned. Yeah. Because the average human doesn't check for the materials and methods. It doesn't check for the experimental design. It doesn't check for anything. Mm. And so, you know, science tells us that there is no free will is not at all different from Jehovah told me there is no free will. Or, you know, uh, science, you know, tells us that, you know, uh, the whatever you can't predict electrons mass and you know whatever position and energy at the same time science tells us so it's not at all different from jehovah told me so <laughs> yeah exactly so, and, and... But i think that humans in general they're not inclined to they want to believe and they perceive <laughs> everything through the you know yeah. uh like the network of do i believe this person don't i believe this yeah, person yeah, that's absolutely. it and uh, they they're not inclined to rationally analyze the in, like information that comes into them and then construct their own opinion based yeah. on you know the truth values that they <laughs> that they assign through the rational thinking because they just assign those truth values based on the you know Credibility. The inclination yeah yeah no it's 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 funny and ironic that this foundational value of of science which again we can also consider a reactionary idea which is the take nobody's word for it idea it's the against authority ideas uh it's ironic now that science has been so subsumed back into that normal way of doing things for humans which is taking authorities words for it uh, and again <laughs> there's obviously a a an irreconcilable tension just as there is between so many things, just as there is, like we talked about last week, with progressivism and conservatism and, you know, all these different um, polar opposites, both of which contain a lot of truth because the truth is somewhere in the middle, but the truth is different for, for any given thing that you're analysing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's very, very difficult for people to, to pick through and find the good ideas that can live in harmony with each other or realize that ideas don't have to live in harmony with each other. They can both be valid, but they are contextually modified. Um, so this whole, you know, not ex not taking uh, the word of authorities is actually, you know, it's, it's a really good thing.
but at the same time, when you take that to a pathological level, you have you know the Dunning-Kruger effect and things like that. And then it's ironic that the Dunning-Kruger effect is a description that scientists came up with because people were doubting the authority of scientists when the foundational value of science <laughs> is... Very you know, so I, it's all really fascinating, this kind of... And it is like a yeah. wonderful game, you know, and when you look at it like that and you see, you know, these little factions pushing back against each other and, and not really understanding their own ideas, let alone the ideas of each other. And, and you know... It goes without saying that I am a human and I put myself in, in this camp a lot of the time as well. Heart, dimly understood ideas, you know, um, false confidence and certainty. And, you know, I have tried to, to search for those sorts of things and, and uproot them sometimes. But again, that's a pathological tendency. You know, you have to yeah. have a framework. You have to have... Yeah, you have to, you have to balance it out. <laughs> yeah, everything's I mean, got to be balanced. You, like, you can't get rid of the essential desire to, to have certainty. Mm. And, you know, people who believe the authority, they do that because of the desire to have certainty. Absolutely. They don't, like, they want to have, you know, any, uh, like, worldview. They are fine with any worldview, worldview as long as they're certain that that's the case. Yeah. And so, you know, with they be believe you, and so they're like, yeah, okay, this is the case. I'm certain now. I'm fine. I can sleep nicely, right? And uh, the people who go for whatever, the big Dunning-Kruger guys, yeah. they also are doing the same. They're just like, you know, I don't want it to be uncertain because if I try to understand what you're saying, I'll be uncertain because <laughs> it will contradict my own yeah. beliefs. I'll have to, you know, kind of pacify that. There will be a huge problems with me being uncertain. That's really worrisome. Yeah. So I would rather be certain that whatever I believe is true and that's easy and I'm certain, I'm good, I can sleep nicely. Yeah. And so, but when you go into, you know, uh, if you're trying to understand the way the world actually is, you have to get to uh, read, at least in some sense, the notion of feeling certain yeah. and you need to be comfortable yeah. with the feeling I'm certain. Yeah. But then you want to finish your journey. You know, you are, are <laughs> yeah, I'm tired aiming now. <laughs> for the end. You don't aim for the journey to continue yeah, perpetually. For sure. So yeah. you want to be certain. So as soon as you can, you know, like lock your worldview, as soon as you can uh, pacify everything, you make coherent, if you wish, yeah. everything you have within you, you'll yeah. be like, boom, you know, coherence <laughs> achieved. I'm yeah. certain. Yeah. Um, this is it. Like, you know, I found my, uh, you know, place. Yeah, I think I think the whole. And it's really hard to balance the two because yeah. you want to be certain, yeah, but you also don't want to be certain about bullshit. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> it's another one of these of these poles. It's it's quite the same as as other things we've talked about, and it's very similar to the to the free will debate as well. In that, like, this is an ancient debate, and there have been you know different schools of thought, and there's a whole branch of of philosophy, epistemology which is somehow designed to deal with this issue of, of knowledge. You know, how can we have knowledge? What is knowledge? You know, you have ancient Greek skeptics who, who say, you know, well, you can't be certain about anything. If you're a good, uh, you know, um, rhetorician, you know, if you're good with arguments, you can make credible arguments for both sides of the story. So give up your notion of certainty and be happy forevermore with the fact that you know nothing, you know, that's that kind of <laughs> ancient Greek skepticism. You have Cartesian skepticism, which we've already talked about, which is, you know, 
uh, an analytical tool, like an attempt to break things down and then rebuild them up and rediscover certainty. Like, what can I actually be certain about? And, you know, fast forward into the 20th century and you have postmodernism. And postmodernism is a lot like, you know, you can think of it as like the free will deniers. They're, they, they're like, we, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. We can't have certainty. Um, and then they go, oh, well, so there's no truth. They go, oh, everything's a social construct. So every valid, every view is equally valid. It's like, again, they jump over. They go, oh, they, they recognize this fairly basic problem, which is it's difficult to be certain of stuff. And then they're like, oh, crap. Um, I don't know how to deal with that. Oh, I'm just going to jump all the way to the other side and say that I've dealt with it. You know, there is no... <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. But then, then you have, and of course, I'm, I'm enamored of, of something like fallibilism. You know, if you want a, uh, a more rigorous modern framework, and there are obviously lots of, of, of issues with, um, you know, Popper as probably the most influential fallibilist. There are lots of issues with elements of his philosophy but the, the core idea which is that there is no such thing as certainty so don't expect that don't expect foundations don't expect axioms that are unquestionable but understand that you're going to need to use axioms in any given situation and therefore that some things are more questionable than others some things therefore are more true than others so human knowledge does grow check out the world. We've changed the world a lot. And part of that is because we've learned a lot about how to change the world in lots of different ways. I think, I think Greeks. Well, I mean, that's, that's if you believe us, but if you believe, you know, Atlantis people, <laughs> then, you know, it's peanuts and peanuts as opposed to what Atlantis people can do. You know, man, they came from Venus, you know, they yeah. could do, you know, space traveling. So, Hey, you know, but so they, they clearly, there was a degradation of knowledge. Sure, but there there had to have been a growth at some stage, um, for the, <laughs> or maybe. <laughs> no, it's all degradation. It's it all starts degradation, with yeah. Jehovah, yeah. and it only goes downhill from That's there. That's true. That's true. <laughs> because Jehovah is everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. It can be everywhere. So, this so we're is back. like he is omniscient and omnipotent. We're and that's everything downward, down from that. It's Absolutely. Just like, you know, I mean, not as perfect. Back to that idea of, of the golden age and, and, you know, Hesiod, which we talked about <laughs> last week, and that nostalgia. Yeah, and, golden age was the Big Bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah all yeah. that business with Big Bang, and afterwards yeah. is just, you know, the regression. Yeah. You know, as, as Douglas ah, Adams would damn. say, you know, coming down from the trees was a mistake, and, and perhaps even leaving the oceans as well. <laughs> we never should have left the ocean. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I do. I find, and you, know, you can argue that it's a waste of time, or you can say that it's oh, it's esoteric. You know, my father's really fond of saying that these things are esoteric, but I think you can also argue that they have this really quite large causal impact in the world. Like many people aren't thinking a great deal about the issue of certainty about whether or not they can have certainty but it nonetheless nonetheless is a, a massive causal um, player in the way they behave in the world and like their lack of certainty their desire for certainty all the things that we've just been talking about um, does have a big impact on the way they behave and thus has a big impact on the future mm. and therefore these but, philosophical I mean, I, like... Uh, sorry, I just, yeah, the philosophical argument, like trying to understand that issue of certainty is therefore not a waste of time, you know, is potentially very valuable. 
Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's kind of you know at the same time it feels like it's just, this is uh, somewhat you know Red Quinn. So it's yeah. like we continue arguing so yeah. that we have you know some healthy position on it, not sure. because we want to get somewhere. Sure. Well, you know, we were talking, uh, and unfortunately the listeners weren't privy to our conversation, so I'll have to explain it a little bit. But we were talking about the worth of ideas and all of that kind of stuff, and you know, I think there are there are lots of of salient points to be made about. You know, ideas are, are um, worth a lot more when they are, you know, fully realized into products, which are vehicles of those ideas to other people and all that, that kind of stuff. And that's one thing we were talking about. But at the same time, I think formulating ideas oneself and that often, you know, writing often really helps with that. So you're almost forced to create a product in some sense. But, you know, thinking and rigorously working your way through ideas and not necessarily, you know, having a book to show for it at the end or whatever it might be is still a very valuable process because you are having an impact on the way you move through the world and, of course, the way you communicate ideas to others because we're not ascetics living in caves. If you have been able to, you know, understand certain things and you have arguments um to back up your your viewpoints and all that kind of stuff that is going to have an impact on the way you move in the world and of course there is a danger here just like there always is that you can become very competent at making arguments that have no you know you can be a sophist a sophist you know you you come up with very complex arguments that lead people down rabbit holes and that can happen, and I think probably to some extent that that's an unavoidable consequence of the process of, of, of honing your skills in argumentation. However, I think it can also have a very positive impact on, in the world. And I think that, you know, whatever positive impacts... Again, it's like the positive and negative impacts of religion. You know, in, in a sense, religion is a series of arguments about the nature of the world and how to move through it and there have been a lot of and obviously there are many different religions and their impacts have all been very different there have been many positive impacts and there have also been some very negative impacts which partly stem from people really learning how to argue and how to therefore bend others to their will and all that kind of stuff and science is is really similar in this sense yeah um it has tremendous positive benefits and it creates tremendous evils as well and I think we, we've kind of been on this theme a bit today. We've been on this theme a lot, which is this kind of binary yin-yang thing that seems to pop up um, in, in so many different places. Like, There's nothing that's really potent. There's no really potent set of ideas, for example, which can't have both positive and negative impacts. So it's like people are completely anti-capitalism because they can cite... A whole bunch of really bad things that seem as if they were caused by capitalism and some of them may in fact actually have been caused by capitalism but yeah but then they, and you have people who are pro-capitalism because they're like look at all yeah. the good stuff exactly i mean it can't no yeah it's exactly <laughs> as you're saying it's all that in yang it's yeah. like you know we can't like people are you know very bad with being in the middle ground yeah. they're really bad with saying hey you know this is this has bad and good sides 
but you know they kind of you know bad at being practical which is yeah. you know astonishing because <laughs> this is supposedly what we should be good at yeah. you know we are survivalists right yeah. our whole evolution is this evolution of survivability so no species on earth is as good at surviving as we are so yeah. we should be uh, really practical but when it comes to ideas we're really bad at being practical yeah yeah, I, and maybe it's because in some sense it's a new and perhaps way more complex environment than we evolved in. Uh, like, you know, if you consider, consider a hatchet, you mm. can kill a person with a hatchet. Yeah. Nobody will dispute that, you yeah. know? You can, you know, uh, chop trees with a hatchet. Yeah. Nobody will dispute that, <laughs> you know? Is hatchet good? Nobody would say a hatchet yeah. is definitely a good thing. Nobody will say a hatchet <laughs> is definitely a bad thing. They will say a hatchet is a tool. Yeah. It's, it can be used as both. But we don't perceive freaking ideas as such. Yeah. We don't perceive ideas as tools. Yeah. And I think that's actually the problem because we perceive <laughs> ideas as parts of our identity. Absolutely. We're like, we yeah. are ideas. I am idea yeah. of the capitalism or yeah. I am idea of religion. And <laughs> if you say that idea of religion is bad, you're saying that I am yeah, bad. For sure. I'm definitely good. Because or you're invalidating me, you know? my existence. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> I like people, like, I think, you know, people will largely benefit if they approach ideas as tools yeah as like you know yeah. bricks that you you know you build your whatever house of you from you know and yeah. you know yeah, there might be not necessarily the best bricks ever so you kind of like you know <laughs> you work with what you have but you see what you have you know you don't so this, say, leads... this is the best ever and if you don't build a house like i yeah. do you're a fool because my house is definitely better than you <laughs> and this this leads us back into a, a feedback cycle which we've been talking about a lot, um, which is that, okay, if you accept that words are tools, then the best prescription for dealing with that fact is not to be afraid of words, is not to, you know, turn away from them and, and say things like, oh, I don't like labels, I don't like words, or they're all meaningless or whatever. It's to become way more competent with them. That's how you master a tool. You become more competent with it. But the funny thing about becoming competent with words is that it leads into this feedback cycle of all the arguing that we've been talking about um, for a lot of this and doing, we sometimes do, um, <laughs> we often do, for yeah. a lot of this conversation, which is that the greater your, yeah. own, your own facility with words, um, you start to pick apart other people's uses of words and then you then you start to see other concepts in the world and maybe you think nobody else has seen that and at some point that would have been true in the you know way back in the day when you know this new concept came out someone suddenly noticed it and they were able to articulate it and and thereby kind of manifested it as a causal entity i mean we're now talking about the evolution of consciousness and how it became how human consciousness became so causally potent you know people started noticing things because of words but when your facility to words gets to a certain point and you're in an environment that's full of people who have comparable facility with words, who are in some sense your competitors, because we are fundamentally competitive in certain ways, that's fueling a lot of these you know, arguments and, and things as well, then you're going to dive really, really deeply into the nitty gritty and, and potentially become really pedantic and all that kind of stuff. And it takes another level of, of reflection and another, even maybe another level of competence with words, I don't know, before you can start pulling your head above, uh, pulling your head out of all that disputation. Or you do what all the ascetics 
do or, or like you know the genuine contemplatives and you just leave society and you go and, and meditate in a monastery or in a cave somewhere because words are just too much for you i mean that's what you're doing you're basically yeah. saying but you, still, but you still have ideas whether you yeah. go to the monastery or not you Definitely. still have some ideas and some identity yeah and many and, of you end up uh, writing books in words circle, circle nicely here and uh like i would i would say that you know one's approach to identity uh, the best one would be evolutionary approach, like yeah. not to take I, like one's identity yeah. as something stable, Absolutely. not to say like, or you know, I'm a heterosexual, yeah. whatever, or you know, like just not to be you know stable with the identity, not yeah. to say that you know I identify myself as a capitalist, or I identify myself <laughs> as a republican, exactly. Like, uh, but you like, can I mean, you can identify yourself in the moment, yeah. but you know, treat your own identity yeah. as somewhat a car, right? Yeah. A vehicle that gets you through life. For sure, but and so identify. You build it yeah. out of, you know, best tools, yeah. but when you have better tools, <laughs> you change, yeah. you know, for your needs, you know, you get older, you need a new chair that supports <laughs> your back, you know, you, you know, you, you're now don't have legs, you need a crutch or whatever the crap. So yeah. you change your identity to accommodate your current needs and Absolutely, you don't stick yeah. to your previous needs because they are not your current needs. Well, and yeah. I guess that would be very healthy. And I don't yeah. think our society is there yet because mm -hmm. our society is at the point where, you know, we say, hey, you know, we have this little dude five years old and, you know, we need to know whether he identifies himself oh, as yeah. a male or female let's or, you get, know, whatever, trans on, male. Let's not get started and like. Um, <laughs> we should allow him to evolve. We should yeah, allow yeah. us to evolve. You know, yeah. even if you're 45 years old, you still need to allow yourself to evolve for, for further sure. on. And, and you, so, if you treat ideas mm, as tools, mm, that will allow you to, exactly. because you will then identity is like a toolkit. Yeah. So I, I think you need you need to be able to label yourself in some sense, but in the full understanding that it's a tool. And it's a tool, it's a shorthand tool. You know, I might say I'm a fallibilist or something. And of course, most people will, will just look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, but I might, or I might say I'm agnostic, or I might even say I'm atheist. Um, because it's a shorthand that tells them something about me. They would be way wrong to assume that whatever they understand to be an atheist, as in some kind of complete model, is what I am. But I still might use that term as a shorthand into helping someone start to build a model of me, which is part of building a relationship, right? But yeah, I mean, everybody, we have to take to heart, I think, you know, I will just, you know, I'm prone to linking things to, to obscure Greek philosophies and stuff, but it's, it's Heraclitus, you know, we, we have to take that change is the only constant idea too hard we have to take that you know permanent evolution or perpetual perpetual evolution or pan evolutionary idea to heart of course i believe that i mean my <laughs> my worldview there's a bit of confirmation bias going on here because my worldview is very much constructed that way and i also believe that any i believe the consequence of the fact that the world is actually this evolutionary phenomenon and that change is a constant one of the consequences of that is that any attempt to radically deny change or block change or create um, some kind of stability, you know, will, will typically be a very hard thing. You know, you'll, you'll try to make something rigid in order to take it out of the cycle of change. And any such attempt leads to the 
top blowing off, you know, it leads to a buildup of pressure until the top just explodes off. And I think that's why, you know, totalitarianist um, uh, societies will, will tend to end in some sort of revolution or whatever. And of course, we know that democracies tend to as well, but we need a political framework that allows, that acknowledges the reality of change and doesn't try to stop it. And it's exactly the same with personal identity and, you know, the self and the worldview and all that kind of stuff is that if you try to clamp it down, um, it that ultimately becomes kind of pathological. And one of the ways it can become pathological is through the is through pruning um, of of neurons and basically the the decrease in neuroplasticity that can happen. And then you become locked into a certain um, framework of ideas and a certain conception of yourself and it no longer works in the world particularly well because the world has changed while you were trying not to change and of course you are still changing because yeah. you're aging and you're dying and and your your you know your brain is less able now to to recover from this uh, and <laughs> and you know change was not stopped because you know we're all going to die and <laughs> Yeah, I mean, more more or less so, I guess. Uh, unless you're Jesus Christ, in which case you don't get to die. Yeah. Um, you um, get to respawn. But uh, so, so uh, but like you need to get, you know, like you know, you still want to have certainty because you're human, <laughs> or one is a human because so one wants to have certainty, stability. and so yeah. uh, like you need some stability. There has to be some you know philosophical you know um, uh, tool whatever that helps you to. Uh, achieve that and not, you know, be in the permanent state of uncertainty because you should allow yourself to change. So you can't, you know, like cling to something. So yeah. you can't be certain of what you are. Yeah. And so if then you will be in the perpetual state of uncertainty and that will be really unhealthy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But, so in a way, it's kind of, you know, it has to be balanced in some sense, right? <laughs> like everything so, we've been talking because about. Because <laughs> you need to allow yourself to change, but you yeah. also want to know where you're Absolutely. currently standing. For sure. So that's like, it's, it's a tricky one because, yeah, you know, as soon as tricky. you label yourself <clears> as something, <throat> then you like, well, I'm that. You know, and then uh, when you are in whatever, say, in a day or in a month, you yeah. are doing something that doesn't go with that identity, or you are presented with a choice that you either yeah. follow that identity or don't mm. follow that identity, then you're like, well, I'm that. I will follow my identity because I established I'm that, right? And so I'm honestly, like, personally, I'm somewhat against, you know, personal identification. Like, I just dislike the idea. I think mm. it's harmful in principle. Yeah. But I don't think we can, like, I just don't see the way because, you know, I don't see how we can still be humans uh, yeah. and, uh, like, allow ourselves to change, but do it in the, you know, healthy manner. Yeah. Do it in the, um, because we want to get somewhere, yeah, right? Absolutely. We want to, it's not like, you know, mm. I will be changing, 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 then I will die. You know, yeah, of so, of it has to, but as soon as you put that stop, as soon as you say, you know, hey, you know, well, this is me, or I will be me in 10 years, then you are kind of preventing the further change. So well, I think you need to, hmm. uh, yeah, so I think, 
and, and of course, you know, could talk about the ship of Theseus and personal identity and, and, you know, how much of something can change before it's not the same thing. What are the essential properties? So essentially what you're saying is that there are essential properties of Ivan or whoever, Yoha, sorry, um, that, um, that somehow need to be preserved even in... A, a, you know an environment of rapid change so again it's it's exactly another one of these the poles are not going to be where you find the most sensible place to be you can't prevent change uh, but constant change of all elements is clearly pathological that you know maybe that's something like um well no it's not something like serious dementia that's going to be different again but it's 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 like constant task shifting, which actually I guess probably is like um, dementia, where the attentional um, bandwidth or the attentional attention span is so infinitesimally short now that you are task shifting so rapidly. So that's changing the contents of your attention are changing so rapidly. They're so unstable that you can't actually function in the world at all anymore, and you you can't form new memories and and all of that kind of stuff. And in some sense, you can think of that as a model of like extreme change, maybe. Um, so yeah, you've got to be somewhere away from the poles. And I, of course, I tend to think, and you tend to think, whether you articulate, whether you would agree with my articulation of this or not, you act like having a kind of philosophical compass. So having an understanding of the reality of change, but the necessity of stability is part of the way that we cope with this kind of thing. Or maybe, um, yeah. you know, maybe we, a bit of stability is just what we have if we allow ourselves to have it. You know, so instead of going too deep, and I think, you know, you and I have both done this in the past, you know, going really, really deep into the, into the, into the foundations. Again, it's like Descartes you know, exercise in skepticism. It's taking away all of your knowledge and foundations until you get to some point where it's like, oh crap, I don't know who I am anymore or what I am or what I believe yeah. or I can, you know, argue the, the, the opposite <coughs> point of view on so many different subjects now that it's starting to feel to me like there is no truth. And, and of course, you know, the skeptics, the yeah, ancient, yeah, yeah. ancient Greek skeptics get to that point and then they say, so just, so just you know, don't worry about it anymore. Just... um except that there's no certainty and you'll live a good life. Uh, except that there's no certainty but death and you'll live a yeah. good life. Because but, you, I mean, but yeah, you, you need to be somewhere, not you need to be, a different thing is going to work for different people, but it does seem like you need to be not on the poles. And if you're someone who wants to engage with ideas a great deal, and therefore you're, you're kind of vulnerable to change in some sense because you want to let, ideas in you've got to be open you, in order to understand things in the first place to critically engage with them you're going to need some kind of of good epistemological grounding like a good philosophical framework into which those ideas can be welcomed um yeah and, and critically analyzed. like yes and you have to be no you have to let ideas go as well like of you course. have to be free with the way you yeah. uh, decide to get rid of the ideas Absolutely. like as soon as the idea doesn't work you don't you have to be not emotionally invested in any of those ideas but then you know like uh, then there is a 
somewhat logical paradox that you know the fallibilism then is itself an idea of and course. it's like yeah. a foundational idea so you're not allowing the foundational idea to change but i feel you know that yeah, it's more like a logical obvious, yeah. paradox it's more like you know the philosophical problem that it is an actual one yeah it's like a- I, w- I would probably go, you know, true. with the Taoist and like there yeah. is a way, yeah. but just because of the virtue of that, of the nature of that way, it cannot be put in words yeah. because words are concrete, you know, yeah. they are, you know, like uh, specific in a certain way, while that, uh, you know, way of changing, way of living yeah. through change and keep changing and while still being you cannot be put in words in principle because words, you know, they are this and they're not that, right? You yeah. know, if you say word, it has yeah. an antonym usually, right? Sure. And so it's not, it's, it's you know, opposite. While that kind of a way encompasses the idea of you changing to the opposite extreme without, without sound, you know, like without losing you in a way, right? Yeah. So this is, this is, this is more like, you know, my hope than it is my certainty. No, I think that I, I, I you think... still can be, keep changing and yeah. until... I mean, I feel like, you know, this is how it delves ex machina out of the problem. But, but there always as long is. as it works. Mm. So we, we talked about, um, uh, you know, I would love to talk about, about Taoism at length as well, because, as you know, I, I love those ideas. Um, and I think that there's a great deal of, of, of truth to that way. There's a great deal of pragmatism to that way of, of moving through the world. But we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in terms of, um, you know, that deus ex machina of the foundations. That, that will always be the case. And there are certain pragmatic decisions that we make. And, you know, one of them is that to be a realist, for example, you know, there is a real world and it has, you know, an extension in time, which, which by the way, is a real thing. Um, and... Um, you know, so the world isn't boiling out of existence and being remade every microsecond and we are remade complete with, you know, all our memories of the past and things like that. And the world is is pre-made with a history and things like that. You know, you, you can't, there's, there's not, it's solipsism, right? it's, it's basically solipsism. There's nothing you could find or do. There's no argument that you could create. There's no experiment that you could do, etc., that would invalidate that idea because the in um, the invulnerability of that idea is built into the idea itself, right? Like solipsism <laughs> as well. Um, yeah. You know, like the idea that you are the only consciousness. Um, so we, you know, those are interesting thought games, but you make a pragmatic decision that those are most likely false. So again, you can't invalidate them, which means that your worldview is not grounded on pure logic or pure reason or something like that, because reason can't invalidate those arguments, right? So, yeah. But you discard them based on on pragmatism, and based on, uh, I think you can do it based on you know an evolutionary pragmatism as well. Um, and you, you know, you can use principles like Occam's razor and, and that kind of stuff as well, because um, that's a pretty ridiculous scenario. It's so at odds with all the evidence that we have that, you know, it seems like, um, you know, multiplying causal entities beyond necessity or, you know, the you know, formal definition of Occam's razor. 
because you're adding something completely unnecessary to explain the world. But yes, one has to concede, like a fallibilist would have to concede that the foundations like realism and, and etc., are pragmatically chosen. And then fallibilism builds into itself. It is Taoism in, in some sense, you know, because it's, it's a Western version of a Taoist epistemology. Uh, you know, Taoists were not necessarily that big on epistemology. They weren't necessarily that big on explaining the world. They were more big on how you should move through the world. And in that sense, they're a lot like the Greek skeptics. Um, that's a, uh, it's a passive philosophy. You know, fallibilism is an active philosophy. It's an attempt to explain the world, but it's the way of no way. It's the paradoxical way. It's this way negates itself, you know. So that's that's something that, you know, I, I think that's a beautiful overlap between, between you know, Taoism and, and fallibilism or between, um, and actually I'm going to put that in my article now because, I, you know, I was going to write an article about ancient Greek skepticism versus Cartesian skepticism versus fallibilism. And I think I'm going to enjoy now making that connection with Taoism. So thanks for, um, <laughs> thanks for stimulating that thought. Oh uh, yeah, no, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> as long as I drive you towards coherence, oh, I'm yeah. feeling good. Absolutely. Um, thanks. But yeah, so the, the honorous, on the honest fallibilist knows the uh, you know the introspective fallibilist knows that this is the way of, of no way so it's it's the axiom that denies axioms so it's a formal paradox absolutely this sentence is not true you know mm. um, but don't forget yeah. that fallibilism tries to accommodate for the growth of human knowledge which means that that's not illusory which means that we can know more even though we never have certainty even though all knowledge is conjectural, conjectural, there is in fact such a thing as knowledge, and that that that's a kind of pragmatism in a sense as well. I guess that's realism about knowledge, but it's 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 realism about the impact humans have had on on the world. Um, our ability to manipulate the world is evidence of the fact that we have learned things about the world. So again that's that's just realism so i guess you know you get you get um the growth of human knowledge for free almost when you're a realist because it's self-evident that human knowledge has increased our range of affordances increased increased the range of things we can interact with in the world increased the number of ways we can change the world and therefore it must be real make sense yeah i confirm Thank you.